magazine that uh, is uh, really representative in the largest way, although it began as a, a part of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and, uh, really by the disciples of Chogyam Trungpa, but uh, now has a very, really tries to cover a full spectrum of Buddhism in the West. And they asked the people who are contributors to the magazine to contribute what they thought was going to be the trends in, uh, since they're now 30 years old, the next 30 years in American Buddhism. So I asked some of my friends, some of my teacher friends, and they said, well, the trends among American teachers currently of Western Buddhism is going to be old age, sickness, and death, uh, because we're all getting old. But, uh, but apart from that, how is the scene going to change? And the very question itself is, uh, I think, a remarkable question, because fundamentally, what the Buddha taught is everything is impermanent and everything is always changing on one level, on the whole um, philosophical level. There is nothing but change. It's even incorrect to say everything is changing. It's more correct to say there's nothing but change. On the other hand, we can, in this world of duality, talk about Buddhism through the years and say that Buddhism has changed. Buddhism has changed that there was the Dharma that the Buddha taught and that as it spread through the different parts of the world, it has manifested itself in a different way and it's continually changing and very much uh, colored by the place that it manifests and and grows and thrives. Um, so I think it would be very interesting for Korean Buddhists to look at us. I I had the great opportunity to be in Korea probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago, I'm not sure. But my husband was invited to be part of a psychology conference in Seoul. And at the end of our week in Seoul, uh, some of our Korean friends took us on a drive from from Seoul down the Korean peninsula to the south end of it. And uh, we stopped at various Buddhist shrines and uh, temples and they're really, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't traveled so much in Buddhist countries, but they were very remarkable f- for me for the vividness of the colors. The, the, you see the same stories that we've told about the monk who's chased by the tiger and, f- and falls over the edge of a cliff and is hanging on by a vine. And it's depicted, it look, you know, I don't know what kind of paints they use, but it looks like tempera, you know, it's really bright colors. They're wonderful pictures in the, the the the, uh, the temples are wonderful to be in. Just the experience of being there, it, the aesthetic of them, is quite uplifting and overwhelming. So, I was thinking about that as I came in here this morning, and I thought, so dull in here, so 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 not overwhelming, and uh, we're just different. And I thought also, I wasn't going to talk about this today, but for the benefit of the Buddhist television and the people watching, I think the, the principal trend, I'll tell you just one that I think is going to be the trend in, in Buddhism in America in the next 30 years. I think it's going to become even more normalized than, uh, than it has become. I remember some experience, it must have been 20 years ago, uh, my friend Jean told me about a conversation she had had with her granddaughter, and the conversation had happened on their patio. They'd been having lunch, and they discovered a hornet's nest under the eaves, and Jean was trying to dislodge the hornet's nest without 
killing the hornets. And she explained to her granddaughter that she was taking the special care, not getting an exterminator, because she said, as a Buddhist, I'm doing everything that I can to not destroy any life. And she said the granddaughter looked at her obliquely, kind of out of the corner of her eyes, in a kind of quizzical way that children often do when they suspect that you're maybe putting them on about something, (laughs) and said, nobody's grandmother is a Buddhist. So (laughs) this is 20 years ago in America. And, of course, it's very much representative of the fact that 20 years ago in America, there were Buddhist grandmothers. Of course there were. There were always the Buddhist grandmothers who were natal Buddhist grandmothers who represent that that population in America of people who have uh, ancestral derivatives in Asia. They have always been Buddhist grandmothers, but not among the population of new Western Buddhist meditation practitioners. That's not so common. Now it's becoming more common. Now we have Buddhist grandmothers and Buddhist family days. We have grandmothers bring their grandchildren, so it's different. And I, I think that what's going to happen is Buddhism will become more normalized. It'll be in one of the other American religions among a vast variety of, not vast, but large variety, of diverse variety of American religions. And I think that the, the, the teachings of the Buddha will be continued to be spread as they have thus far, not only through teaching centers, but through magazines and through books and through newspapers the mainstream news media about meditation practice. And I think that more, uh, perhaps as more people more di- of more diverse backgrounds begin to um, be interested, they'll identify themselves more as followers of the teachings of the Buddhist, Buddha rather than Buddhists, at least to begin with. It's a, it's a, it doesn't require a cultural, doesn't require a different story background. We all have story backgrounds in our life. I also think that the general idea that I think is current in the West, that being a Buddhist means being a meditator, will change. We assume that. You know, there were times when I would go back east and visit my what remains of my family there, and I'd be at some family event and someone would introduce Cousin Silvio, who's a Buddhist teacher. And, and people would lower their voice. They'd really say, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, but, and I, you know, I wanted to say to them that Buddhists are regular people and they talk in a regular tone of voice. And, and not all Buddhists are meditators. And in Asia, where the, uh, the vast amount, the vast, per- larger percentage of Buddhists, of uh, people who identify as Buddhists, would not identify themselves as having a meditation practice. They have perhaps a prayer practice, a veneration practice. They certainly have a sila and morality practice uh, and an ethics practice and a telling the stories of their religious background practice, but not so much a meditation practice. That's really uh, 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 the way that Buddhism came to America. And I think that will change in America. And I think more and more uh, because of the exigencies of an American lifestyle, because it's difficult for people to go off for long periods of time and at the same time juggle having a, a family life and a, practice, a meditation practice life, I think more and more we'll come to understand that ethics practice 
and uh, social justice practice is another way of manifesting the understanding that uh, happiness rests on establishing and realizing our compassionate relationship, our relationship to all beings. And then when we, when, when we fill those relationships with compassionate connection, that that's the path to happiness. And whether it arises on the cushion or in some location other than that, like in a registration center for registering voters, wherever it arises, it will have more to do with motivation than it will how it looks, which I really believe anyway, because I think that motivation leads to intention and the intention to where am I going and towards what end. I really think, I, I, I hope, maybe in the very beginning, I wanted to be a good meditator. And now I actually, I, you know, I, being a good meditator is not the, the end of the path for me. Being a person who um, has a fair degree of all of the paramitas that we mentioned, being a person who lives with some equanimity and some patience and enough resonant goodwill to meet the challenges of life is what I would say about what's my intention. And then towards that end, I could say, is what I'm doing consistent with that. I really like uh, uh, thinking about that. We'll come back to this next week, maybe talk about some of the other things that I imagine. But when they first asked me what are going to be the changes in Buddhism in America in the next 20, 30 years, I thought, how do I know? You know, it's so, uh, you know, such hubris to, but then I answered the question anyway. So <laughs> people ask, you try, you try to answer it. And His Holiness, the Dalai Lama said recently, what if there's some scientific discovery that actually uh, uh, proves false some uh, tenet of Buddhist psychology, for instance? But the, the, His Holiness, as you know, is very interested and very um, uh, much in dialogue with uh, neuroscience these days and neuroscientists. So what if we discover something about the mind and how it works that really refutes some piece of Buddhist psychology. He said, well, we'll just have to change the Buddhist psychology, that's all. Which I think is really uh, not uniquely to His Holiness an open-mindedness, but uh, really the essence of the Dharma. That, that more than dogma, you want to know what's actually true. And when you find out that something that you thought was true wasn't true, and this is actually true, say, oh, okay, this is actually true. I didn't have a right view. Now I have a right view. I wonder where to start. I brought a whole bunch of things. I think I'll start with this. And I'm going to read a little bit to you because I've been very much taken with how much a context... how much the context in which we live really uh, shapes a view that becomes to us, uh, to me, for instance, or I think to any of us, but uh, becomes a, a, a truth that we then can't let go of because it's absolutely true. And in another context, it would be different. How can I say that in another way? Um, this is a this is a ridiculous story, but it's a tiny little story. I spent a month in Jerusalem 
for a variety of reasons, visiting friends, teaching Dharma, uh, seven or eight years ago. And Jerusalem is a very religious conscious city. Uh, there are not only pious Jews there, but pious Catholics. There's a, the, the, uh, there's a, uh, 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 Muslim community in East Jerusalem. It's a very pious place and it's full of people with religious observance so that the population of people who even aren't normally very religiously observant, at least in the street, dress themselves with a degree of modesty. There are women wearing a head shawl. There are uh, women wearing head coverings because they're religious Jews. There are nuns. So people dress in a, in a sort of modest way. You tend to dress with long sleeves if you're a woman. I rarely saw a woman wearing trousers. People wore <laughs> longish skirts. Um, people covered their hair. Uh, with a hat or a scarf or something. Certainly older women dressed with modesty. And I just did that as a matter of course. It seems respectful if you're living in a community that did that. And then at the end of the month, just before we were about to return to the United States, my husband and I flew down to Eilat, which is uh, an Israeli city just uh, uh, on the border with Egypt. And it's an international beach resort. People come from Europe, uh, like people go from here to the Caribbean. Great, grand hotels. Um, it's, a, it's a vacation destination. And we spend three days in a hotel. So we, we, we get to our hotel and we say, let's go to the beach. And well, let's go to the boardwalk and look at the beach. And go to the boardwalk and look at the beach. And here are all these people in extremely skimpy <laughs> bathing attire. And the truth is that I looked at them and I thought, so naked, look at them. And I really felt my mind startle. You know, I didn't, like, hmm, this is not nice. And then I had to think to myself, wait a minute, my daughters look like this. They dress like this. You know, in my own time, when I was young in the United States, I dressed like this. This is okay, my eyes have changed. And to realize that our eyes are always changing by the context and to just take note of that. I hope that I have this reference here on the right page. Oh, I do. Good. Talking about people who have a view of how things should be. So that, that was modesty. This is, it's right to be modest. It's right to cover your body. In certain places it is, you know. But is it bad if, my, if people... What does it mean that people wear skimpy bathing suits? Does it mean that they're immoral? Or does it mean... This is a place where people wear skimpy bathing suits. That's an accomplished person does not, by a philosophical view or by thinking, become arrogant, for he is not a, because because he's not of that sort. Not by holy works, not by tradition is he led. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. And you keep looking for what's actually true, rather than grab onto something and saying this is it. That was my. Editorial, that wasn't the Buddha. <laughs> this is back the Buddha again. For This is the Buddha again. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> so that actually is from the Sutta Nipata. So that is the Buddha. 
And I, um, you know, it's roughly translated from the Pali, but it's a good thing to say. Now, I realize how much when people say things that um, our views they are, are what they hold as truths, and they are people that are on my side. I feel differently than if they're people on the other side. So this is a this is a book called The Buddhist View of Abortion. It's written by Bhikkhu Niana Sobano. Uh, and these are little Bodhi leaves. I don't think they're getting published anymore. But these were great little books. This is this is number one seventeen. They used to get published by the uh, Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy in Sri Lanka. And uh, I won't tell you what year this was published yet, but I'm going to read you a little piece of this. It says, if religion is to be of practical use, it should, uh, if not provide us with complete answers, at least make clear to us those principles of conduct that can safely guide us uh, through the new wilderness of um, modern life with its fierce fierce shifts and starts in social custom and technological capacity. So a thorny question, he goes on, I'm going to skipping, that has aroused passion in recent years is that of abortion. We have to withdraw from the public din and gain fresh insight by examining abortion from a Buddhist perspective on moral grounds, leaving aside the social, political, and legal aspects of the matter. What does Buddhism teach? Students of religion are sometimes surprised to learn that the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, far from being esoteric, uh, morally indifferent, exercise and contemplation is a practical and highly moral religion. goes on uh, about the, they believe that the moral, that is keep, uh, keeping the moral principles is a practical necessity for one's own well-being and progress. This is very important that the morality based on one's own, not only well-being now, but progress means one's future. Because we're going to talk about abortion as, in all cases, the producer of negative karma for the future. A number of Buddhist teachings bear directly on the problem of abortion. Over and above everything is a principle of causation. According to the Buddha, the universe is not a field of spontaneous happenings, but an infinitely complex web of causes and effects stretching from limitless past to limitless future. Within this matrix, human beings are not hapless victims of fate, but primary players in the drama of existence, possessing the power to shape their own fate by acts of body, speech, and mind. Do you believe that? I do. Volitional action, or kama, rebounds upon the dua according to its nature. Good action produces good results. Evil action produces evil results. So I want to just mark that sentence about, you know, I think things produce results. I want to think a lot about what would, what would go in the category of an evil result and... Um, You know, just but that actually is a philosophical point that you can either might or might not be true. You know, think about it. Okay, we go on. The first Buddhist precept is to refrain from taking life. This precept refers to all sentient creatures, from the lowest animals out to the most 
up to human beings. All intentional killing is unwholesome karma, which generates unwholesome results. But the killing of the human being is considered especially serious, one of the gravest accidents that one, actions that one can commit. It is immoral, foolish, and wrong, not only because of the immediate suffering of the victim, but also because of the tremendous comic debt, karmic, we could say, that is engendered and must sooner or later be paid by the doer. So I have to think about whether that's something we know for sure or what that means exactly. Any person with the slightest interest in the Buddhist path must realize the danger of violating the first precept by killing a human being. Civilized people will agree that the killing of innocent human beings is immoral. Thus, the debate on abortion often hinges on the question of whether or not a fetus in the womb is considered to be a human being, a person. When does a human being begin? There's a long part here about when does it begin, when does it begin, when does it begin. Uh, After six weeks, two weeks, 12 weeks, not till birth itself. Uh, Then he systematically proves that those don't work for him, that uh, life is continuous in different forms. So there's no time that it is or isn't. uh, It is human beings in the process at any time. Making the point that uh, some people would say after two weeks or 12 weeks or six months or not till birth itself, if the birth itself is proposed, what is it about the passage through the birth canal that confers humanity on a fetus? If it becomes a person at birth, would we not be blameless on taking a human birth? How about five minutes before the event? So the thesis of the thought of that is hideous. Take any time after conception and apply the same test. Whatever time we fix has the same liability. If the end of six months or three months or one or whatever is the magic humanizing moment, then we can uh, assume an abortion would be permissible even two minutes or two seconds before. But he said, who of us would not be driven insane by this frantic mincing of time? It comes down to this critical problem. If a fetus becomes a fully human person at a certain point in development, who is to say precisely when such transforming instant occurs? Well, it goes on skipping. In that case, many would conclude the matter must be left to individual discretion. Now, he says, we come to a very important point. Certainly, we may all entertain personal beliefs as to when a fetus might become a human being, but... There is somewhere only one truth. If a fetus at some point in its development becomes a human being, a morally significant person, our beliefs do not make it so. Its essential nature is quite independent of our views. This realization must be kept in mind for any rational inquiry. goes on. Let me see if I can find the next piece because what comes up in your mind? What if... Um, what if it's a disastrous circumstance? What if? Well, well, do you tell me what he thinks he's going to? What you think he will say? What if it's a result of rape or incest? What if? What will he say? 
seems to be categorical that life it's life. never life is He will life. say it's it's too unfortunate and it's terrible, but it's not the child's fault that uh, that uh, the only we cannot predict. Let me see. Sooner or later, Buddhist psychology points out with acute insight that for an intentional act of killing... Ah, this is the line that I really wanted to tell you. Because I thought about it a long time. I don't know if I agree with this. That for an intentional act of killing to be carried out, there must always be a degree of hatred or aversion in the mind. When the deed is done, a seed is planted which will sooner or later yield a fruit. You know, what do you think? I have a thought about that. I have a thought. So wait a minute. Okay, how about 30 seconds of thinking so everybody can think. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, first of all, some opinions, and particularly, what about that line? Do you think, first of all, there's two parts in that sentence. An intentional act of killing, there must always be a degree of hatred or aversion in the mind. Do you think that's true? What do you think? Uh, but you have to say why, why. Come on. There you go, Nancy. Well, I'm thinking not, there may be hatred not of the person or the soul, but of the situation. I'm thinking of like abortions for medical reasons where a child would clearly have a lot of physical suffering and a very difficult life if the child survived. Into yeah. It's so I don't think that's out of hating the child, but hating the situation. Mm-hmm. See, let me tell you, and then we're going to talk about some more, that I, I don't imagine we're going to come to an end on the abortion question. That the reason I'm bringing this up really is what it did for me to read this. Is when I finished, I thought to myself, who wrote this, you know, and when was it written? So then I looked that up, it was written in 1989. That's pretty neat recently. And I said, well, who wrote this? Surely a person who grew up in that. No, it's written by um, Biku Nyanasobano, whose former name was Leonard Price, an American from Louisville, Kentucky, who was ordained in um, Bangkok in 1987. So a young man, a man brought up as a Westerner. Uh, but the, there are a lot of pieces to this sentence about Let's go back. For an intentional act of killing, to, there must always be a degree of aversion. And how about when a deed is done, a seed is planted, which will sooner or later yield a fruit. That's got two pieces of it. First of all, probably most of us would agree that actions have circumstances so that something happens as a result of doing everything. I think he's talking about later also in the context of later being a continual stream of karma into the next life and the next life and the next life. So it's different context from what Westerners who don't think of a multiple sequential life sequence would think about. But just to, And there might be a multiple life sequence, I don't know. But 
just to say that that rings differently in the mind of someone who's thinking multiple lives and not multiple lives. So I don't know. And I really am thinking, oh, here's what I want to say. What, what I really hope we're thinking about is that morality is not, morality is a practice. That I think that the, one of the things that I, I feel very much when I read, when I read this and thought about it, is I am not so, uh, I'm not so hopeful for myself and my own mind thinking about taking on morality practice by learning the list of the rules of what's doable and not, but about by taking on the practice of um, engaging with the rules and um, seeing how they, they live in me and work with me, which would be, I'm sure, another way of saying you're looking for a way to get out of following a rule that way. You know, that, so I'm, and I'm aware of that. That that could be some sort of a device for saying I don't have to do this because I am liberated from that rule because of something. What do you think? Okay, now Susan. Ah, <laughs> waiting to say something. Well, first, I'm not going to let any man tell me anything about abortion. <laughs> I mean, um, abortion can be saving a woman's life, yeah. and also in terms of a world that's just too overpopulated, too many. People, not enough now. I mean, I think I think it's a sin to bring a child into the world who you really can't afford to to, to raise and to. I mean, I think that that's that's. I mean, but also, of course, if if it's a rape, if it's abuse, if the child is, is I mean, all those things. I I mean, I'm adamant. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so any other thoughts? Have another thought. There you go, Rebecca. Ironically, I shared during our blessings that my girlfriend has had an abortion today and that she went through the hard decision. She was given the news from the doctors that there was a genetic birth defect and it was a gray area, just in the same way that this author is describing. Is it five seconds? Is it 12 seconds before? What? It's, it's not a cut and dry decision for her. And after having talked with her a great deal about it, I feel very sure that she has no hatred in her heart for this baby and that the thought is of loss and of love and of regret and of great sorrow and I think that that's ridiculous <laughs> in someone's heart I actually like that exegesis so much this, this and this and this and besides it's ridiculous <laughs> Tony, what do you think? I'm sorry to call. I'm not sorry to call on you. I'm happy to call on you. I know you think. <laughs> I, I, I listened to that, and I, a number of things came to my mind. First of all, it came, what came to my mind was the Buddha's idea of the thicket of views. That, that this whole thing is just. The Buddha says there's no opinion, no view you can have that won't cause suffering. And that really what karma is about is not whether it's two minutes or five minutes or, I mean, that's trying to project reality out there on your concepts. And this this human essence is something, I don't know, it seems like philosophy. And that really what's important is the intention. Uh-huh. And I do 
I mean, the, the intention is compassion. It can be compassion for someone suffering. Whether or not a fetus is a person is of you. Mm-hmm. And what's important is the intention that motivates the action. That's, that's my view, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that taking the last thing that you said, that where it is is an intention, is that it's intention that shapes karma. Not action, yeah. you know. That uh, you know. Uh, that's my view. But that it's intention that shapes the karma, because uh, that's it. Uh, that if I practice hatred or aversion, that that will grow as a as a habit of mine. And if I practice compassion, it. It won't. One, I'm certainly not saying anybody's names, but, and this happened a long time ago, but one of my friend's grandchild child was born here in Marin General Hospital with very, very, very serious multitude of birth defects, but lived through the birth. And the time that it was not either possible or predicted that this would be, but the child was not going to be well. And, uh, but it lived on life support systems. And, uh, the question of, uh, disconnecting the life support was a question. The child's grandfather was a physician on the staff at Mern General and given, you know, was given the, the, the okay by the parents of the child to discontinue the life support. And he himself disconnected. And I, I found that very, very touching to me, that that act of uh, intentionally ending the life of this newborn was not given to somebody else who was a stranger, but was done by the child's grandfather. I mean, it, it tears me up now, and it's 20 years ago that this happened. I can't, you know, I can't imagine myself doing that, but it's a, you know, it's an impossible kind of a, you know, you don't let that into your mind thinking about it. Um, okay, thank you very much, particularly for the, it, it hangs on intention. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking of your earlier comments about uh, everything changing, and it seems to me that this is a question that is inevitably going to change as time goes by. Um, moral questions change. Uh, if we all agreed that uh, every person should have the right to their own decision about doing something like this, and we also agreed that abortion essentially is not a good thing to do, sometime who knows, 50 years, 100 years, we'll come to a more comfortable uh, decision about where we go with that kind of a question. And I, I can't, at the moment, get too concerned about the people who are so firm about their thoughts uh, that they bother us, as you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The conclusion is, so the conclusion is, Barbara says, Don't let Sarah Palin win and vote no on four. <laughs> <laughs> no on four. No on four. Okay. No on four. No on four.
No on eight. No on four. Yes on two. No, no, we should have, the, we should also make it clear, uh, just because that came up, wait, wait, we're coming, we're coming, coming, for the, for our Korean audience at this point, that it's important that we make an enigmatic remark like that, which sounds like a secret code, that there is, there's a, there's a, a, a national referendum coming up for a new president in three weeks, and, uh, along with it, I, I thought this morning we should change the voting r- rules clearly. And Tony knows way more about this than I do, so that you only vote for the presidents and the and the and the senators and the Congress people. No propositions. First of all, they're ob- oblique. Second of all, views change. Third of all, they get people out because they have one specific cause. And uh, anyway, that's a little side issue. But what you just heard is an oblique uh, mantra. Um, no on four. No on eight, yes on two. <laughs> well, how we're supposed to vote? I I actually have my ballot. I have my absentee ballot, and I have the president <laughs> marked in. And I didn't and I didn't send it yet because one of my websites has promised to send me this afternoon how to vote on everything else because they're so obliquely worded that sometimes if you want yes, you get no unless you know what to do. And it's done intentionally. Uh, it, I'll send it to you. Uh, you send me an email, Joe, and I'll send you the website. It's supposed to come this afternoon at 2 o'clock. Do you know what website it is, Tony? Something like Conscious Community something something. Tony has been the, the what do you call it, what you were, Rotor? What, what, what you, were you all those years? What was your elected office in California for all those years? Well, I was a county clerk in, uh, in my county. No, 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 no. You, weren't you something of voters for the state? Yeah, that's what it is. That was, that was part of my job. That was part of your job. Okay. Do you happen to know offhand so we could increase the, the mantra now? What, what on one and what on two? We just know no on four, no on eight, yes on two. Okay. And no on Sarah Palin. <laughs> No on 11. Okay. No on 11. Okay. Let, let's, let's just go back to karma a little bit, okay? Now that we've digressed. But the piece that I wanted particularly, the, the point I wanted to make for our Korean friends is that American Buddhism, for whatever it's worth, and I think it's worth a lot, has taken on as part of its um, just purview a concern and connection with social justice. And uh, I think it's fair to say has taken it on to be not apart from spiritual practice, but really the spiritual practice that if the goal, if, if the intention in practice... What? Tony, what are you going to say? Oh, I'm just looking at antlers on a deer. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I thought you looked so startled. I thought maybe I'd made a terrible mistake. Okay, so here it is. That what what I think has been really accepted. I remember twenty years ago, people were beginning to say, "How can I bring Buddhism into my life? How can I bring my practice into my life? How does this relate to my social activism?" And I think now that question has already been so answered that no one asks it anymore. That we take it for granted that being conscious of 
the 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 um, the environment of the society in which we live and recognizing that our intention is not only to end suffering for ourselves mentally and with the habits of our mind but to end suffering generally in as as much as we can in this world which means being able to spread the possibility of uh, of peaceful coexistence, of caring for others, of manifesting the paramitas as we respond not only, not only to our friends and our family, but to everybody in this world, that social justice issues become part of our purview and part of our practice. That uh, uh, it would be... Uh, uh, Somebody asked me this question, actually, and I wrote an answer to it on the Tricycle webpage. They said, um, I don't, I'm not really crazy about either candidate. Is it part of my practice? Oh, it's a baby deer. Oh, it's a baby deer. It's a, it's, Oh, I, 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 I want to tell you a story right away, and then we're going to come back to this issue because the baby deer reminded me. This is an important story, but it's part of our practice actually to pay attention to social issues. And uh, oh, here was the question: They said, "I don't like either candidate." As a Buddhist, am I obligated to vote? I said, "I think as a Buddhist, we are obligated to remember that everything that we do has consequences, so that not voting." also has consequences. Not voting is voting. It's, uh, it's voting to let other people have your right as a citizen to make an informed decision for the future. Not voting is also voting. So uh, it seems to me quite clear, and I think that uh, the, the degree to which Western Buddhists have engaged themselves in social issues and political issues is fairly new in the history of Buddhism. I think probably not only because we um, have a chance to take on Buddhism as a as a context and as a religious practice as adults, but also because this is a democracy and you can do what you want to do. You can make your voice heard. This is one of the great benefits of living still in a democracy where still you can say, this is not what I wanted and one person, one vote, I wanted another way. And may it be so that we have that. I want to tell you about the deer going by and a, 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 a story that I heard that's essentially a Buddhist story last night. Heng Shuer, who's you probably have seen before, who's a Chinese Buddhist, He's the resident teacher at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, uh, was one of the people who uh, spoke and uh, played the guitar, a guitar-playing monk. It's another new thing, both in, I'm sure, in Chinese Buddhism as well as in Western Buddhism. But Heng Shur sang some songs last night and talked at the party that we had to celebrate 25 years of the Inquiring Mind Journal. And he told a story about um, 33 years ago, when he had newly become a monk, he and another monk friend undertook to do a um, pilgrimage from San Diego to Eureka, so, uh, and so on foot. So that's what a thousand miles, two thousand miles. It's, it's a long pilgrimage from from almost to the Canadian border. But they did that pilgrimage first of all entirely on foot. 
And they took one step, two steps, three steps, complete prostration. And they did that all the way from San Diego to the Canadian border. It took them two years and nine months to do it in all kinds of weather. You know, uh, in uh, in uh, Tibetan practice, there's prostration practice, and uh, it's part of nundro preparation practice, and you have to do a tremendous number of prostrations. But indoors, you know, <laughs> and not every time you walked any place, <laughs> but they walked all the way, they did a prostration every third and he talked about that being a tremendously mind-shaping and mind-training experience. But he told this story as well. He said they were coming through some place in Southern California on a day that the weather was incredibly hot, way over 100 degrees, and you're doing complete prostrations down on the ground, so it's asphalt, it's very hot. And it's very hot, and it's through a very... Uh, a treeless place in Southern California. I don't remember exactly. He gave exactly the, the the coordinates for where he was, but I'm not from there, so I don't remember exactly where. But he said suddenly there was one of those enormous trees um, that was just a big shade tree. It's a, he, he, he didn't say the name of it, but you know, kind of like a plane tree or something. Sometimes a big, big tree with a big radius of shade under it. He said, so at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he and his companion stopped in the shade of that tree to linger there for a while because it was so impossibly hot. And he said, standing under the tree, bunched up with deer and coyote and wild dogs and rabbits and literally snakes and frogs. He said, everybody was just sitting there. It was just... So I was remembered by, I looked out and I saw the deer and I thought, well, this is a peaceable kingdom here. Our deer are not afraid of people. But here are Hang Shur and his colleague. And you could look at that miracle story, because I believe it completely, and say, well, maybe it was Hang Shur and his colleague who were radiating that kind of peace, which they must have had in their hearts from their practice. But maybe it was more, or also, that it was so hot that everybody, all these species of different forms of life, were jeopardized by it. You have to get through the day and not die of thirst. And when you're jeopardized, you don't stop to think about, I don't like this person, or this is my enemy, or this is my enemy, or this is my enemy. You're jeopardized, everybody stands under the same tree. And then afterwards, maybe you could say, oh, that's a frog, I eat it, you know, whatever it is. (laughs) But during... During, you just stand there because everybody has the same awareness of we are in the same boat. And that, I, and I wanted to remember to bring that back to you because I think it's that fundamental awareness. We are all in the same boat. That's the awareness, the revelation that everyone is hoping to have from their practice, whether it's their meditation or their serving food in the St. Vincent de Paul or they're registering voters or they're doing rehab in a prison Whatever we are doing, there but for the grace of anything, go I. It's the karma of things. Even this particular author, who I was grateful to in the end, although I read it and I said, what are you saying? He said, you know, everything happens because of the karma of things, you know. Uh, He talks about pregnancies happening because of the karma of things. 
And I think he's a little bit slanting it into people could have been more careful uh, and not gotten pregnant. So it sounds a little bit like it's somebody's fault. But if it's their fault because they weren't careful, it's not their fault. It's the karma of the moment where being careful wasn't present. That's all. It's nobody's fault ever. It's just what happens. And who knows the karma? If that was the karma of the moment where nobody was home to pay attention to being careful, that was the cause of something else and the cause of something else and the cause of something else. Somebody was telling me yesterday in my family on the telephone, I hope I did this skillfully, about something incorrect that happened and da-da-da-da, why it wasn't right and whose fault it was. And I said, listen, fundamentally it was the fault of Adam and Eve. You know, that <laughs> it, it, it just, it really is, you know, back to whenever. So can we leave this? Or do you, you want me to read the last line of it? He doesn't... Uh, listen, well, no, it's not bad in the end. The road to perfection is a long and crooked one, so I believe that. And we should... By the way, I want to say one more thing about Yvonne Rand. My friend Yvonne Rand has, for years, a Zen teacher of renown and of great competence, has for years been doing ceremonies for women particularly, but I think sometimes both parents, when they've made the conscious choice to abort an embryo or a beginning fetus because they know that it's not well, or when they have lost a pregnancy. People who have suffered both from having made the decision to have an abortion and people who have uh, had a miscarriage, that in any case, one mourns the loss of the life that could have been if the circumstances had been different. And the life that either ended itself naturally or that needed to be ended and that one mourns for everyone, including the, the parent, the mother who lost it. And uh, she's done really remarkable things of uh, having you know, ceremonies with women. We don't usually do a ceremony. People go to a hospital and they have a, a pregnancy terminated if it needs to be, and then they go home. But we don't, um, we don't do funeral services around it usually, or... Or, or, or do some celebration around it, and maybe it's worth something. Maybe, maybe um, when uh, at at one point, one of the lines I read to you, where it says it'll have repercussions in the future, and I thought maybe, maybe I think I would go along with everything has repercussions in the future, but what if the repercussions of someone needing to go ahead with such a decision? were that uh, they then were more conscious in general of the suffering of all beings. What if the repercussions were that they were then more sensitive to when this happened to other people so that they could attend to them? What if the repercussions were an augmentation of their own capacity for compassion? Mm -hmm. Then uh, you don't know what the repercussions are going to be. That's, I think, where really, I, I, I think it's very important that Tony said, this is philosophy and this is not philosophy. That a, that a view of, you know, you know, it will have bad repercussions. It will have repercussions, but 
to to make a, an evaluation they're bad or good. That's what's problematic. It'll have repercussions. When you say, well, you know, so the plane crashed, you know, and all those people died. And it must have been their karma. It was their karma to get on that plane. But you know, that usually when people say that, people don't say it so much anymore. It was when people didn't have such a good idea about karma. But it was, what was understood was that tragedy was making up for something else. So it was a payback. But for someone who heard the day before that they had um, malignant melanoma and were going to now die shortly in a terrible way, maybe maybe it's a grace that that happened. You don't know. You know, that to, to say necessarily because life ended. It's a terrible, that was a bad thing making up. Sometimes it's a good thing. The very idea that life ends, you know, that, that ending a life is a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. Sometimes, for for a fetus or for someone with a diagnosis like that, but to think really, what about intention, and really keep our mind on that? I think that intention is really part of the first two of the uh, eightfold path. We don't normally name it as wise intention. We call it wise aspiration, but it really is intention based on wise understanding. This is the way, there is a way, there is a way towards happiness. It's possible to be happy. Maybe it's another way to say the first, the, the first wise understanding. It's a possibility in this continually challenging world in this continually changing body to have a mind that uh, rests in equanimity and um, soothes itself and other people with compassion. That maybe would be a good summary of wise understanding. And wise aspiration would be the intention that comes out of that. Marty, what? judgmental, which we all have because our views are, by definition of being human and have uh, just the very limited uh, perspective that comes from just what our experience is. Um, If I remember what I learned from you, actually, about everybody is doing the best they can, no matter what. <clears throat> Everybody is, and, and you know, it was that experience of last week at um, Howie Cohen's Sangha, where there was this huge juxtaposition of people that got into these interactions, one who was stealing out of the Donna basket, another who had a good meditation, and then fell apart and lost it and got into this whole altercation. And, you know, I just, and and this discussion about abortion and everything, I mean, I, I have a daughter who had a pregnancy, and um, it was not a relationship that, that she wanted. And she had an abortion, and we went with her to Planned Parenthood, 
and brought her home, and it was sad, but bringing that, I, and I'm sure, I mean, she, another choice would have been to bring the baby into the world and, and have it adopted to a family that really wanted it, but that was just not in her ability to handle at that time. And I just, you know, <laughs> to get into judgment, you know, I mean, it's hard not to, but you're dealing with what the particulars are of your situation, your conditioning, <laughs> where you are in life, and so is everybody else. <laughs> and it yeah. all kind of works together somehow, and we absolutely don't know what the ramifications are. Actually, I think that's a very good place to end up on that particular phrase. We absolutely don't know. Kevin Griffin played the guitar last night uh, as part of last night's party. And uh, one of the songs that he sang was a song that he's written, you may have heard it, called Don't Know. Just don't know whether, you know, this or that or that or this. Don't know. <laughs> which, which doesn't mean... Uh, I, well, I don't have to tell you what it doesn't mean. It's a, you know, I mean, everybody's got views, but to know that their views, their views, who knows? We make judgments moment to moment, and guided by intention. My own, anyway, we'll continue from that next week. But let's sit for a half a minute, and uh, Are you not next week? oh, I'm not going to be here next week. But I, I'm sorry, I, but I will be. Uh, I actually. Well, I will be back after that for seven weeks. But let's make an intention for all our... Let's make particular intention for our friends in Korea who are watching this television video. And let's make an intention for their practice. May it thrive. And uh, maybe we could think of them as uh, uh, sisters and brothers on the other side of the world. And uh, uh, for those of them who have chosen to practice in a monastic style, let's actually be grateful to them that they are holding up that side of the tradition and the lineage. And uh, we'll do it for them as lay people uh, dedicated to the practice of uh, uh, cultivating the mind. And let's uh, make the intention that uh, we all cultivate the mind to the place that uh, brings us happiness and brings happiness and the end of suffering to all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.